Are you ready to receive the word today? Yes. Amen. Get your Bibles out with me if you would. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. It's close enough. I think it's okay to read a Christmas text. How about you? I want to tell you, he's here today in this place, and my prayer for you is that you would, that you would know that personally. I doubt any of you came to church today and were surprised to hear someone say that. But there was a lot of people throughout the Bible that had heard he was here too. And yet every time he showed up, people were surprised. And I pray that he'll show up in your heart and in your life and in your circumstance today in a real and a personal and a powerful way. We'll get to Luke chapter 2 in just a few moments. First of all, let me just uh, explain what we have going on over here. For those of you that haven't been with us, we're celebrating this Advent season with the Advent wreath. And so each weekend uh, leading up to Christmas, we've been lighting one of the candles. And we began the series with the hope candle. And hope says to us that it's going to get better. Hope speaks a word for us in this season, much like it spoke to those in the Old Testament through the prophets, that a Messiah is coming, that a deliverer is coming, and though it's difficult today, it will get better. And I want to tell you this Advent season, you can hold on to hope because hope is not just limited to this lifetime. Hope is for eternity. We have a hope. The Bible calls it the blessed hope of the redeemed. And so we've lit that candle week one, and we've lit this candle every week since to communicate this thought that, that God is bringing us hope. And then the next candle that we lit was the candle of love. Last weekend, we told the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife and, and how God used that story to illustrate for us God's plan of redemption, that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. And we said, because God loved the most, he gave the most. And he paid the price. He ransomed us in all of our sin. And he purchased us with his precious blood. That's love. It's come to us this Christmas season. And, and it always comes. And it meets us at the point where we are. Now, today, we're going to light the third candle. And it's the pink one. And yes, it's pink for a reason. Some of you have been waiting all months to figure out why in the world don't all the candles match? Why do you have to have a pink one there? I know, that's the question my daughter was asking me. Like, what's the deal with the, the pink candle? And I said, well, come to church on Sunday and you'll find out. All these colors in, in church tradition, they, they represent some things. The purple communicates majesty. It reminds us that we serve not just a, a savior, but a king. That Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so the purple speaks of his regality. But it also speaks of something else. Purple is the colors that speak of repentance and fasting. And it reminds us that, that the Advent season is not just a time of expectation. It's a time of preparation. That during this, this season of Advent, as we celebrate the Lord's first coming and as we anticipate his coming again, we ought to be making ourselves ready. It's a season of repentance where we, where we remove the, the sin and, and we confess what separates us from God. And, and fasting, and fasting is a, a spiritual discipline of abstaining from feeding our physical bodies while we intentionally pursue God and nourish our spirit man. 
Many in this season of Advent practice this discipline of fasting, but, but now we get to the third week and, and the, the color brightens. We move from repentance and fasting into a time of rejoicing. And so the pink candle represents joy. And it's this season where, where he, he's coming and, and he's so close, he's almost here, that now we move from anticipation to absolute celebration. And we're going to do that today. We're going to celebrate the reality that God is among us. What was begun as a promise and now pursued us in love is now coming so close that the excitement is, is palpable. You can sense it. His nearness, it changes the atmosphere and the circumstances of your life, the way you look at them anyway. So I want to tell you today, right out of the gate, and you need to, you need to probably write this down, the key to joy is presence. I know y'all are smart enough to not let me mislead you with that one. It's certainly not the presence that we have put ourselves in debt purchasing or the presents that are going to break in a few months or end up at the yard sale next year. No, but the key to joy is presence. It's the presence of Jesus, cradled, crucified, and coming again. I want to talk to you about how you can have that kind of joy in your heart and your life today. And so today we're going to light this third candle. We're going to light the candle of joy. And my prayer for you again is that that something in your heart would shift, that there would be a brighter hue in your outlook, that there would be something that just lifts on the inside of you and, and becomes a little brighter and a little more hopeful and a little bit more optimistic. Why? Because what was off in the distance is now coming near. You know, uh, the phrase and the song that we often sing is, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But you know what I found to be true, that Christmas is often not the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is the most magnified time of the year. So if you're happy at Christmas time, you're really happy. But how many of you know it's also true that if you're, if you're sad, if you're lonely, if you're missing someone, then this time of year can magnify those emotions as well. You can go from sadness to depression because Christmas is the most magnified time of the year. And, and it seems like the holidays enhance the emotions. And for that reason, if we're going to have a sustainable joy that carries us through every season, through every high and every low, we have to have the assurance of the presence of Jesus. And it certainly begins in a cradle. I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at this story beginning in verse 8. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Have you ever noticed that pattern in Scripture? I mean, I've, I've talked to people before that have said they want to see angels. Like, oh, I just, I just wish the Lord would let me see an angel. Not me. I mean, every time an angel shows up, it says they were terrified. I don't know what Hallmark movie you've been watching, but listen, the first thing every angel says when they show up is, don't be afraid, right? You know why they say that? Because everybody's afraid. I don't need to see an angel. I'm glad they're working on my behalf. Stay busy, guys. I, I don't want to see you. I can promise you the angels guarding me are not little fat, chubby babies with gold instruments. 
These are the warring angel army of heaven. I don't need to see them. Just march. Just do what you do. They were terrified, it says. And then look at what the next verse says. But the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Good news that will cause great joy. Can we all just say that together this morning? Good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And that's huge. And that's why it's significant that he's talking to shepherds who are on the lowest rung of the social status. This is for everybody. And it's good news that will cause great joy. Why did he say that, though? Why not it's good news that will cause great hope or, or good news that will, that will show love? No, this is good news that's going to cause great joy. And the answer to that question is in the very next verse. The angel goes on to say, today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Notice this. He didn't say today in the town of David, a Savior will be born. He said he has been born. He said it's today. And by the way, it's right over there. It's in the the town over there. They knew exactly where it was. They knew when it was. Here's the reason it was good news of great joy. Because in that moment, all their hopes had become reality. In that moment, their longings had been manifested. That's why we began this service saying, joy to the world, the Lord has come. He has come. It's the presence of Jesus that assures them of their joy. And they're not the only ones. This idea of joy is is a major theme through the Christmas story. Eight different times the Christmas story speaks of joy. Joy can be ours today. Yeah, I I saw this illustrated this week uh, on, I think, Friday. Uh, I got on Facebook and I saw uh, one of our families in the church, the Snyder family, their son Colin was coming home from college. And, and it's that time of year. A lot of families are getting back together again. Colin's coming home from college, and it's also his birthday last week. And so his mom, Val, posted a picture or a video of all of them inside the house, and the lights are off. And they're waiting to surprise him because Colin's about to come home for Christmas, and it's his birthday. And, and so the candles are lit. The room is dark, and the candles on the cake are lit. He's not in the room yet. He's not here yet. But apparently they've seen his headlights in the driveway. They know it's close. And so they go ahead and they light the candles. And then sure enough, he comes in the door. The lights come on and everybody shouts surprise. And they begin to sing happy birthday. And when I saw that video, I thought, that's Advent. That's Advent. There's a longing. There's a hope. Not here yet, but oh my goodness, he's so close. We might as well go ahead and light the candle. I mean, he's about to come through the door. It's almost there. I mean, can you sense that in your heart today? I mean, we're 10 days away from Christmas. Now, some of you, that doesn't give you excitement. That gives you anxiety. You're like, I I got so much to do, man. Blow out the candle. I got too much to do. Not yet. Not yet. I'm telling you, in my house, they got, my girls have three days, three and a half days, technically, of school. And then they're on break. And I can tell you, at that moment, when school's out, we move from anticipation to excitement. I mean, Christmas is on in my house. It's not just one day. I mean, the moment they get out of school, Christmas is on. It's that excitement that we are almost there. That's what Advent is. That's what the shepherds in the field felt that night 
when the angel said, I give you good news of great joy to all people. Why? Because today he has been born. Look with me at verse 12. It says, this will be a sign to you. The angel's still speaking. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, now for us, that, that sounds poetic. It might sound uh, nostalgic because we've heard it so many times. But for, for them, this was a sign. Not just you're going to find a, a baby wrapped up in a blanket because, come on, that's not a sign. That's what we always find, right? I mean, you go to see a newborn, they're probably going to be wrapped up in a blanket. No, this was a sign. You're going to find a sign of a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You see, these, these were Bethlehem shepherds. They were just outside the city, and, and their responsibility, as we see throughout the Old Covenant, was that the firstborn lambs were to be consecrated to the Lord. They were the Passover lambs. It was those firstborn lambs that had to be without spot and without blemish. And so what they would do is when the firstborn lamb was born, they would take it and they would wrap it up in swaddling cloth so that it wouldn't get hurt until it was strong enough to go to its mother. And and they would take it and they would lay that newborn lamb down in a little manger. It was actually a place near Bethlehem called Migdaliter. And Migdaliter is called the watchtower of the flock. You can read about it in the book of Micah. The watchtower of the flock was the place where the shepherds would take the Passover lamb. They would wrap it. They would swaddle it. And they would lay it in the watchtower. Now, I know your nativity probably looks like a Lancaster County barn or something. But it was a tower. And it was at Migdaliter that they would lay the Passover lamb there to protect it and keep it safe for its appointed time. And so the angel appears and they says, today I've got good news of great joy because a savior has been born to you. He's right over there. He's swaddled. This is going to be a sign. The baby, just like the Passover lamb, is swaddled and lying in a manger. Listen, those shepherds didn't go running through the dark streets of Bethlehem, down back alleys, trying to figure out whose shed some little young uh, girl from Nazareth had a baby in. No. They heard the report, and they went to the watchtower of the flock, and there they found the Lamb of God, swaddled and lying in the manger. He was here, and for the first time in their lives, what was a hope, what was a prophecy became a reality, and there was great joy. There was great joy because Jesus' presence was with them. Look at verse 17. It says, when they had seen him, not when they heard about him, when they saw him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. There was great joy because the Messiah was present in the cradle. They had seen him. Now fast forward 30 years in the story and and we see the prophet John the Baptist. He's the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. In fact, he's the bridge between the Old and the New Covenants. He's the greatest prophet because he's the only one of all of them that prophesied about the coming of the Lord. He's the only one that could actually point his finger at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's right over there. 
He's saying, you can see him. He's right there. Follow him. He's the Lamb of God. And then a few years later, Jesus has already established his ministry. He's he's gone to the cross. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's ascended back up to heaven, and the church is now advancing. The church is spreading to new regions and to new territories, and, and there was an opposition that rose against the church. There was some false teaching that had, that had come in. There were several people that were, that were teaching a different gospel. In fact, I want you to go with me almost to the back of your Bible to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. This is not John the Baptist. This is the Apostle John. And he hears about these teachings. And John understands something that you need to grab a hold of today. He understands that joy is sustained in the presence of Jesus. And this false teaching was was being taught now that, that God was utterly remote from the world, that this world is wicked and evil and bad, and because it's so bad and God is so holy that he keeps his distance, that he has nothing to do with this world. And John hears this false gospel. It it became known as Gnosticism because they began to say, because God's so far away and we live in this wicked world, you have to get secret revelation. You got to get hidden understanding so that you can eventually find your way back to God. And John says, no, are you, are you kidding? God's not far away. God was close. He lived among us. We smelled him. He was close. There was another teaching at that time that said, okay, well, if, if Jesus did come, he only pretended to be human. He only pretended to be one of us. He wasn't actually a human in flesh because he's God. And if he was God, he couldn't clothe himself in flesh because we're all wicked and this world is wicked and and everything of your flesh is wicked. And so it's really all about the spirit. And it was docetism. And so John hears these, these beliefs going around. He was there. He knew him. And so he writes this letter in defense of this gospel truth that joy for us is in the presence of Jesus. And Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 1. I just want to read the first four verses. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. You hear the emphasis on proximity here. He says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. Verse 2, the life appeared. We've seen it and we testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You hear the the, the doctrine that he's driving home that yes, he was with the Father, but now he has appeared to us. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him with our hands. Verse three, he says, we proclaim to you that we have seen and Heard. Now he's just being redundant. I mean, he's driving this point home. We have seen this. We have heard this so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying Jesus is the bridge 
between heaven and earth. He did span the distance. He did come down and dwell among us. He is our way back to the Father. And then look at verse 4. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. See, the apostle John, he, he knew what John the Baptist knew. And, and John the Baptist knew what the shepherds learned that night through the angels, that I bring you good news of great joy. It's great joy for all the people. Why? Because a savior has been born to you. I'm telling you today, there is joy in a cradled king. Because he came near. He came to where we are. But beyond that, there is joy in a crucified king. How many of you heard the scripture before? Psalm 118 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. It's hard to even say that verse without smiling. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I've heard that verse quoted all my life. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard people quote that verse. And, and here's what we usually mean when we quote that verse. What we mean is that, that God is in control. That this might be a bad day for you, but God ordained this day. He created this day so you can rejoice. You can be glad. And, and that's not, that's not a, a bad theology. The fact is that, that hey, God is in control. And, and so we kind of we use that verse as almost a, a, a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Like, hey, you know what? You can do this. When you're feeling down, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And that's good. But I want to tell you today, that's not really what that verse is talking about. That verse is not talking about today. It's not talking about this day. In fact, I want to, I want to read the, the verses that lead up to Psalm 118, verse 24. And I'm going to read it out of the, the ESV version because I think it gets the nuance right in the translation. It says in Psalm 118, verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is a prayer. Open to me the gates of righteousness so that I can enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So what are the gates of righteousness? Where is this gate so that we can enter into God's presence and give him thanks? Well, the next verse tells us the answer. Verse 20 says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So the gate of righteousness is the gate of the Lord. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he was teaching. When he, he was giving his, his message on the mountain, he said this. He said, enter through the narrow gate. How many of you remember this text? For broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus is saying what the psalmist said, that he is the gate of righteousness, that he is the gate that we go through. Enter through the narrow gate. And then in John 8, he said it plainly. John, 8 verse, or verse, John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the gate. Lest, lest you wonder, I am the gate, he said. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out, and they will find pasture. Now look at the next verse in Psalm 118, verse 22. 
the psalmist says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When did that happen? It happened at the cross. Jesus was despised and rejected, Isaiah says. It happened at the cross that Jesus became our substitution. It was us that should have been penalized. It was our sin that should have been penalized. But what did Jesus do? He became that Passover lamb. He became the the sacrificial lamb of God for us on the cross. He became the chief cornerstone. Look at verse 23. It says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. To that, I would just say, amen. Is the cross still marvelous in your eyes? I mean, have we heard this enough that we're kind of tuning out to wait for some new revelation as if there was some deeper truth than the cross? I mean, is it too familiar that we've lost the awe and the amazement in our worship? He said, this is marvelous in our eyes. And he hadn't even seen it yet. He was just thinking about what it would be like. We can look back with 2020 vision. We can see the sacrifice. We can know about his death and his burial and his resurrection. And it ought to be marvelous in our eyes. And so the psalmist is talking about this moment that we come through the gate of righteousness, Jesus, who is the gate, the Lord, and he becomes the cornerstone for us. He was rejected, but he became the cornerstone on the cross. And now the next verse, Psalm 118, verse 24, says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not today, this day. Can I just tell you today, it doesn't matter what today looks like. It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. You can look back on the day and you have a reason to rejoice. You have a reason to be glad. This might be the, the end of the story for you in the, this life, but you know because of that day, you can rejoice and be glad. You can have hope that lives beyond your lifetime because of that day. And so there is joy in the presence of a crucified king because we know what that means for us. That we win. This day, rejoice. And not just rejoice, because sometimes that's all we hear. This is the day the Lord is made so let us rejoice and and we interpret that to mean that you know what i'm just going to have to i'm going to have to praise god through the pain i'm going to have to sing in the valley i'm just going to have to lift up you know heavy hands and i'm just going to by faith i'm going to press through and i don't feel like it but god deserves my sacrifice and and he does but it doesn't stop with just rejoice it says rejoice and be glad Which means, regardless of what you're facing today, when you look at that day, you've got a reason to be happy. You've got a reason to rejoice today and to be glad. See, rejoicing is a choice. You can choose to praise God in the difficult circumstances, but gladness, that's an emotion. This this verse tells us that when when we look at that day, Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what has tried to rob your joy or your Christmas spirit or whatever you want to call it, you can look at that day and you can rejoice and be glad because joy is found in a cradled king and joy is found in a crucified king. 
But thirdly and lastly, I want to tell you today, joy is found in a coming king. As I've mentioned over the last few weeks, we all understand now that the Advent is not just about the first coming of the Lord. It's bigger than Christmas. And that's why we need to to lean into the idea of Advent during this holiday season, because it's as much as it is about Jesus coming the first time, it's about the second coming. It's about preparing our hearts and our lives for his coming and his appearing. Peter wrote to the church about how, how we anticipate the coming of the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it says it like this. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. See, it it would be easy for us to just say, well, you know, I mean, the shepherds, yeah, they had an angel visit them. I mean, they actually got to see the baby. So they've got reason to be joyful. They actually saw him. Or it would be easy for us to go, well, sure, John, he can write, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, we beheld his glory. But I didn't get that. And and we could follow suit with, with so many others and say, well, if God would just show me, if I could see then I would believe, then I would have joy. And so Peter writes directly to us in 2018, and he says, though you haven't seen him, though you haven't heard him, though you can't see him right now, you believe in him. And because you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Look at the next verse. It says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. Can I tell you the end is the salvation of your soul? See, some of you are going through stuff and you said this feels like the end and you've allowed that reality to rob you of your joy. Don't punctuate your problems wrong. See, too many of us, we put a period where God puts a comma and we go, oh, this is the end. God says, no, 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 this is what I call dramatic pause because I'm the author and the finisher. And the end result is the salvation of your souls. Stop punctuating your crisis the wrong way. And he says, look, you you haven't seen him. You can't see him now, but you're going to be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because you believe in him and because you're receiving the end result, the salvation of your souls. God is calling us today to live our lives with a joyful expectation just like, just like the, the Snyder family was when Colin was pulling into the driveway. Not here yet, but my goodness, he's going to be here any moment. Just light the candle anyway. Let's go ahead and light the, the candle because we want to be ready when the party gets started. The Bible says that's the way we're supposed to live our lives. Amen. Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come, and half of them were ready They had their wicks trimmed and their lamps filled with oil, but the other half, they they weren't ready. They didn't have enough oil in their lamp. They they couldn't light the fire, and then all of a sudden, the bridegroom came, and they said, wait, wait, let us go and buy some oil from somebody else, and he said, there's no time. There's no time. The point is this. We're supposed to live ready. 
Light the wick because he's coming and there is an inexpressible and a glorious joy that can be ours when we live in the presence of a coming king. This past Wednesday, I had the privilege of doing the funeral service for Carol Byers. And funerals are are never fun, but I'm going to tell you, it's an honor and a joy to do a funeral service for somebody who lived ready. It's an honor to lean in to her faith and her confidence. One of the blessings for me on Wednesday was the fact that uh, Carol's mom is still living. Carol was 71. Her mom is the oldest member of our church. And because of her health, she's not able to come on weekends. So most of you have never met Pauline Fritz. But, uh, but she was here Wednesday, and though it was for a funeral, I was so blessed to have her in church again. Pauline will be 99 next month. We, I, in fact, I had to take a picture. I have a picture over here. She's the one on the right. <laughs> Getting harder by the day. You know what I got to say about that beautiful lady? She's got so much joy. I mean, I'm not talking about emotion. I'm not talking about feigning spirituality. No, I mean deep, abiding joy. You ought to hear that woman of God talk about heaven. I, I mean, it's almost like she's already been there. As I sit and, and talk with her, does she have aches? Does she have pains? Who wouldn't at almost 99 years old? She, she's, she's hard of hearing, so she spends a lot of quiet days in isolation. It's hard to communicate, hard to have a conversation. Can't come to church because she wouldn't hear what I was saying anyway. And yet this woman of God has such a joy that I can't talk to her without her breaking into praise. I can't have a conversation with her without her just talking about the goodness of God. I was over at her house a week ago, and she began to talk to me about her prayer partners. She said, I got, I got prayer partners that we pray together. All, all over the world, we pray together. And I'm listening. I'm going, I don't, think, I don't think she's all there. This doesn't make sense. What are you saying? You have prayer partners all over the world, and you guys pray together every day, and, and you have these great times of prayer. And I'm, I'm like, what, what are you saying? And then she says, in one of these days, we're going to get to meet each other. And I realized in that moment that heaven is such a reality for her that she's talking about the saints of God all over the world. She says, we pray together every day. We have these sweet times of prayer and we lift up the church. And one of these days, I'm going to get to meet them face to face. That's a, that's a joy that will carry you through some stuff. That's a joy that will sustain you in dark days. Paul, the apostle, knew that joy. He wrote the letter to the Philippian church, and it's often called the epistle of joy, because so many times he spoke of joy. In fact, I want to just challenge you this week to read the letter Philippians. It's only 104 verses long. You can read it in 12 minutes. Read that little letter, and you'll see what I'm talking about as Paul just, just carries this theme of joy through the letter, and it's in spite of his situation. It's not because of it, because Paul's writing as a prisoner. When he writes this letter to the Philippians, he's, he's literally chained 
to a guard of the Roman palace. And he's writing this letter. And while he's writing it, he says in verse 20 of chapter 1, I don't even know if this is going to end in life or death. I mean, just real news. I don't know if they're going to execute me or exonerate me. Not even sure right now. So he's in, in spite of his circumstances, in spite of the uncertainty, he writes about joy. On top of that, he finds out through some correspondence that there are people out there who are undermining his ministry. All the work that he did that got him put in prison. There are people out there that are discrediting his name, discrediting his ministry. And yet in the midst of all of that, Paul teaches us something very profound that every one of us need to understand today, that, that happiness... Happiness is based on happenings, but joy is not contingent on your circumstances. Joy is a choice. You can choose joy today. You can choose joy. It's an internal character quality. It's not, it's not something that you possess because you have a strong mental attitude. I'm not talking pop psychology today. I'm not talking about just, just believe, just, just think, think good thoughts. No, you don't have joy because you have a strong, positive mental attitude. In fact, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So it's joy that gives us the strength to have a good attitude. If you don't have joy, good luck. You, you can think yourself into a tizzy, but if you have joy... Joy is your strength. And Paul was in this prison and he's writing this letter, commending them over and over again to have joy. But I'm going to tell you that even though it's been called the epistle of joy, the reason Paul could have that attitude and that quality was not because his focus was on joy. It was much deeper than that. 16 times in the 104 verses of Philippians, Paul speaks about joy. But if you invert that number, it's 61 times. That's almost every other verse that Paul mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get joy by focusing on joy. You get joy by the presence of Jesus. And though he might have been incarcerated and though he might have been far from the people he wanted to be with, there was a reality in Paul's life, a reality that is in Pauline's life, that though I'm homebound and I can't get out much, Jesus is with me and joy overflows like a river. And so Paul is writing to them to have joy because he understands that yes, joy is a tangible fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5. It's, it is a fruit and a characteristic in our life, but joy grows out of the root of Jesus. That joy can be a pillar and a strong tower, but that pillar of joy is laid on the foundation, the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing this letter. I want you to look at just a couple verses with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, or 19. He gives them a warning. He says, there are people out there who are enemies of the cross. It's not the people you would think. He's not talking about terrorists or jihadists. Or... No, no, no. He said, these people are enemies of the cross. Look at verse 19. He describes them. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. In other words, these people, they just live for their own desires. Whatever they crave, that's what they go for. They've made a God out of their appetite. Physical, 
sexual, emotional. Their God is their stomach. And their glory, he says, is in their shame. In other words, the things that are shameful, the things that are detestable, the things that God clearly calls sinful and wrong, these are the things they celebrate. These are the things they clap for and worship and honor. He says their minds are set on earthly things. So sounds like he's talking to our culture, but he says this is the reality of where you live. And this is the reality where I live. But look at the next verse. Here's why I have joy in the middle of a prison. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, look at this world. It's, it's not my home. He said, look, I'm, I'm here. I'm visiting. I'm a pilgrim. I'm passing through. But, but I'm, not, I'm not tethered to this world. I have citizenship in a far country. I have citizenship in heaven. And then if you read a little farther down, he goes on to say in Philippians 4, verse 4 and 5, he says this to him. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again. Rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And then he gives this admonition, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Why? Why should I be gentle and not blow my lid and get all emotional and beside myself when somebody upsets me? Why, why, should I, why should I not get all tied up in knots with stress and anxiety? Why should I rejoice and, and rejoice and, and keep rejoicing? Why? Because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. That's, that's how Paul could keep his joy. It was this perspective that says the Lord is near. It was a perspective that says our citizenship is in heaven. You know, Jesus talked about this reality of his second advent in Matthew chapter 25. And he gives us this picture in a few verses of what it's going to be like. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, I want you to just visualize this scene. Jesus says, when the son of man comes, in his glory, all the angels will be with him, and he will sit down on a glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, he'll put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Can you just imagine this moment? It says when he comes, he's coming in all of his glory. Now the first time he came, Philippians 2 says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he laid aside some of that glory. He concealed it and took on the form of flesh, but not next time. He's bringing, he's bringing it all next time. He said, when I come again, I'm coming in all my glory. And by the way, I'm bringing all the angels with me. <clears throat> Revelation 5 describes the throne of heaven. And it says that surrounding the throne of the Lamb of God are 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That's 100 million angels. And Jesus said, when I come back, I'm bringing all my glory and all my angels. Can you imagine what that's going to look like? 
Could you just put yourself there for two seconds and then come back and tell me what is robbing your joy today that's going to amount to a hill of beans in that moment? I mean, what are you letting steal your victory right now that you would actually even think about in that moment? I'm going to promise you, it's the farthest thought from your mind when he comes in all of his glory with all of his angels and he begins to separate his sheep from the goats. You're not going to worry about any of that. And that's what Paul knew. That was so real to him. That was so real that he could be in the midst of a prison shackled to the praetorian guard and he could say, rejoice. And again, I'm going to say it twice. Rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is near. Because all this is gone in a moment. I mean, in a moment. The sickness you're dealing with, gone. The heartache, gone. The pain, gone. In a moment, none of it matters. It's gone. I'm telling you today, there is sustainable, life-giving joy in the presence of a coming king. I sense today as, as we were in this service that maybe there's some Christians here that you just feel like you've lost your joy. Like, you love Jesus, but you just you feel like you've lost your joy. I want to I pray for you today. I want to pray that God would restore that. You know, that's what, that's what he does. He's such a good God. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, Verse four, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore the joy. If you're here today and you feel like I'm just kind of going through the motions, I mean, I, I should be more excited, I know, but I'm not. And I'm not sure why. There's just a disconnect. There's, there's tension between spiritually what's happening and in reality what I'm feeling. And I'm telling you today, there is joy in the presence of Jesus. So how does he answer that prayer? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He says, come on, come closer. Come to me. Just, just come to me. I, everything you need, everything you lack, I, I have it. It's in me. Come, come to me. The same invitation that the shepherds received. He's right over there today, right now. You can go see him. And joy broke forth for all the people. That's the invitation we have today. You can just come back again. Just come back. You know, it's not complicated. Just say, Jesus, I, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm not going to complicate this. I'm going to leave all the worries and all the questions on the side. Just you and me, Jesus. Just you and me. <coughs> and in his presence, we find pleasures forevermore. There's joy in his presence for you today. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment, but there's one other group I just feel led to pray for today. And and maybe you're here and you don't have a relationship with God, but you know you need one. It's what drew you here today. You need Jesus to save you. You need to put your hope in him. Not just as a baby that we celebrate once a year that was born for us, but as a savior who was the lamb of God. Who died for you. So that you could be saved. Maybe you're here today and you say, I, I need, this is my day. I, I, need to, I need to begin a relationship with Jesus. I want to pray for you first. And I want to ask everyone if you would just bow your head with me for just a moment. 
Just to, just to reverence this moment. I don't want anyone right now to be distracted by anybody else. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, but you know you need to receive Christ today, you need to ask him to forgive you of your sins. In the same way that we've lit the, the purple candles signifying repentance and, and consecrating ourselves and preparing ourselves, this is a moment you need to prepare to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. How do you do it? You just repent of sin. You say, God, I'm sorry. I, I've blown it and I recognize it and I desperately need your forgiveness. If that's you today and you need God's forgiveness, just pray this simple prayer. Just say, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord. Jesus, I receive you as my Lord. Just ask him right where you are. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I, I need you, and today, I make you the Lord of my life. I receive you in my heart, in my life, as my Lord.